It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, two big names have dropped out. Chris Christie and Bill Belichick. ESPN, quoting sources, is saying that after 24 seasons with the New England Patriots, longest coaching run in NFL history, six Super Bowl titles, uh, Belichick and the Patriots are going to part company today. That was inevitable, it seemed. And just the pace of news right now, yesterday, just take yesterday, and I'll get to the debate and the town hall in just mere seconds. In the morning, you know, because I'm trying to juggle all this for what I'm writing, what I'm podcasting, you know, we have this Hunter Biden pulling the stunt of going to the House committee that later voted to hold him in contempt, not speaking, moving it out to the hallway, stalking out. That's a pretty big story. Then about five o'clock Eastern, Christie in New Hampshire says he's dropping out of the presidential race. We'll come back to that as well. And then last night, the television face-off. Donald Trump, Town Hall, Fox News, Iowa, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, debate in Iowa on CNN. So, and by the way, I've mastered this technique of being able to watch both events at the same time. Can't give it away. Maybe sometime I'll patent it and sell it. But I have a pretty good idea what went on. And I've got the transcripts and so forth. Anyway, let's go to story number one. And I want to start with the Trump town hall because I thought, obviously it was a friendly crowd. Almost every person who stood up was for Trump. I think it was one person was for DeSantis. So that meant for a lot of applause and certainly made life easier for the foreign president. But Brett Baer and Martha McCallum asked the questions they needed to ask. And yeah, I'll just come out and say it. I, I can't recall another time when I've seen Trump quite this disciplined, um, relaxed, looked like he was enjoying himself, diffusing rather than throwing kerosene on the fires that are out there. It was a pretty successful hour for him. And the contrast with, the, with two hours of constant, constant bickering between DeSantis and Haley, everybody picked up on that as the theme. Okay, Brett Baer, can you say tonight that political violence is never acceptable? Trump, well, of course that's right. And of course, I'm the one that had very little of it. Well, we can certainly debate that last sentence, given what happened with Charlottesville and Oh, I don't know, uh, January 6th as another example. But isn't that interesting? He says, of course, that's right. So there's no soundbite in which Donald Trump says political violence is never acceptable. But at least he didn't dispute the premise. Um, He was asked about his use of the word bedlam. 
which was actually in the context of if I don't win this case, the one he went to on Tuesday here in Washington, in which he's granted presidential immunity, which would blow up one of the four prosecutions, maybe more than one. Asked about Bedlam, Trump does a little jujitsu and says, I think Bedlam is Joe Biden. I think that he's using this. This is just a political ploy. Trump is a dictator. And the press picks it up, says Trump. So I said, I'm going to be a dictator for one day. They cut it. They go, I'm going to be a dictator. But they cut the rest of the sentence. The rest of the sentence was about drilling for oil and um, whatever other policy priority he was uh, pushing. The border, of course. Now, question came up. You said you don't want to be Herbert Hoover. So, do you want the economy to crash in the next 12 months? Because that's what he kind of said. Fascinating response here. I think the stock market is going up, says Donald Trump, because I'm leading Biden in all the polls. Okay, so in 2020, Trump said if Biden is elected, the stock market will crash. stock market did not crash. stock market has hit new highs. So now, rather than having to dance around the fact that he was wrong and Joe Biden has at least, you know, whatever the problems of the economy, uh, inflation and so forth, that the stock market, you know, the Dow is well over 37,000. Trump takes credit for it. Not in office, but he takes credit for it. Oh, because people think I'm going to win. Another question. How much of a second term of a Donald Trump presidency would be about retribution and looking backwards and grievances? And how much would be looking forward? Because retribution is a word that Trump himself has used repeatedly. We, we got the videotape. Trump, again, rather than lighting a match, we're going to make this country so successful again. I'm not going to have time for retribution. Now, before he said that, he said, well, look at everything that we, that's gone on. Russia, 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 and um, other things that he describes as hoaxes. And then on abortion, which I thought was revealing. I know Trump's position, and I know that it's controversial within the Republican Party, so naturally, uh, Fox brought it up. And Trump, of course, first took credit for reducing the number of abortions because he appointed the three justices that provided the majority to knock down Roe v. Wade. And if you like that ruling, you do give him credit. If you don't like that ruling, you blame him. But obviously, in the various state referenda and local elections since then, It has not been a popular position, and it's hurt Republicans. So Trump says, you have to win elections. And so there has to be a little bit of a concession. So first he says, as his position has been, I believe, all along, that he believes in exceptions. Rape, incest, the life of the mother. 
And then he says, referring to the six-week ban in Florida that Ron DeSantis signed into law, you know, if you talk five or six weeks, a lot of women don't know if they are pregnant in five or six weeks. That's a point that liberals make, the Democrats make, and now we have Donald Trump making it. So, you know, he had some of his standard lines. I didn't start wars. We beat the hell out of ISIS. Not for me, Ryan DeSantis, to be working in a pizza shop. Rebuilt the military. The biggest fan of Fauci was Ron Sanctimonious. Fauci was not a huge factor in my administration, so he never fired him. DeSantis wants, and, and Haley, want to cut Social Security and Medicare. So in the other debate, in the CNN debate, I think the biggest miscalculation here, well, there are two major miscalculations, in my humble opinion. Maybe not so humble today. One is, they barely talked about Donald Trump. They just spent two hours kicking the crap out of each other. And even some of the straight news write-ups said, you know, you got one guy who's ahead by 30 points and you're barely talking about him. The only time they talked about him was when Jake Tapper or Dana Bash asked a specific Trump question. And even then, you know, what about his character? Fitness to be president. Haley and DeSantis would answer in policy terms. DeSantis would say, well, he didn't build the wall. But he will build the wall. Uh, Haley would say, Trump ran up too much debt. And DeSantis also saying, Nikki Haley cares more about the Ukrainian border than our border. Nikki Haley will cave to the woke mob. She brought business to China. Seems to me that DeSantis did some of that too. She caves. She takes money from uh, Wall Street, donors. Haley came back and said, well, he's just jealous because, she didn't use the word jealous, uh, envious perhaps because um, a lot of those donors have moved from him to me. He accused her again of um, supporting a gas tax in South Carolina. She said, we killed the gas tax multiple times. And finally, I proposed a small gas tax way offset by an income tax cut, and that never got through. Nikki Haley said, you just can't trust what he says. I said, you can't just build a wall. Not that I didn't want to build a wall. And then, I don't know, I lost track eight, ten times. She said, just go to... This is her new website, DeSantisLies.com. That's DeSantisLies.com. If you didn't get that, that's DeSantisLies.com. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. So I couldn't help but notice that 
the major newspapers and news sites all treated the CNN debate as the real debate, and it was the candidate debate between the two other major surviving candidates, and treated Trump with like a, a small headline, like tiny agate type. But what they wrote was fairer than that. Politico. First, Chris Christie trashed Nikki Haley on an open mic as he dropped out of the presidential primary. <laughs> Donald Trump mentioned that. He also said, you know, Trump also uses humor in a way that these other two don't and certainly did not last night. He says, well, I like Christie a lot better now. Ha ha. You know, maybe I'll make him VP. Then Haley and Ron DeSantis spent the night bloodying each other on a debate stage in Iowa. It could hardly have gone better for the frontrunner, Donald Trump. Politico saying he basked in the adulation of a friendly audience, signing hats, shaking hands, while two miles to the west, former U.N. ambassador and the Florida governor, bludgeoned each other in a debate that became so personal and vitriolic that they they once again left Trump largely unscathed. Uh, Doug Gross, Republican operative, who worked for a previous Iowa governor, pretty much a dumpster fire, tells Politico. Republicans are really savaging each other. I don't think it's helping either one of them. Fresh off a court appearance, Trump made the most of the time back in Fox News' warm embrace. He cleaned up the comments he made in December about being a dictator for one day. He said he has a vice presidential pick in mind, but he wouldn't reveal it. Later, one of his top aides said, no, he doesn't have a specific person. He knows the qualities he's looking for. The bickering and the bludgeoning uh, between the other two candidates. They relentlessly tore each other apart on domestic and foreign policy, even what kind of hotels they stayed in. Haley maintains she flies commercial and stays in residence inns, while mocking the tens of millions of donor dollars she said were wasted on DeSantis's campaign. He has nothing to show for it. They did hit Trump a little bit. Nikki Haley called January 6th a terrible day. Ron DeSantis was picking apart the legal arguments that the former president's team is making. But mostly, they focused on each other, as uh, this Republican consultant put it, hitting each other over the head with a baseball bat. Hardly a compelling case, as political, for an undecided caucus-goer to support either of them. Okay, New York Times. Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis traded attacks on a debate stage as Donald Trump basked in the applause of a friend in the audience on a different television network. Hmm. Dueling appearances that showcased how the Republican primary race increasingly feels like a contest for second place. I've kind of been saying that for a week now, ever since the media, you know, I said on my show last week, I've thrown in the towel. They're saying Donald Trump's going to win Iowa. And then it all comes down to New Hampshire, which is supposed to be Haley's strongest state. At times, it seemed as if DeSantis and Haley thought the winner would be determined by whoever spoke the most words per minute, racing through attacks at such speed, they were all but indecipherable. With the platform all his own, Trump appeared to keep marching toward the party's nomination. He even broke the news of the night, saying he's decided on running mate. I, I just dealt with that. Then you got the five takeaways, the nine takeaways, 12 takeaways. So here, 
I'll give you two of the Times five takeaways. That's all I have time for. Here's the headline on one of them. The winner of the Haley-DeSantis collision, Trump. That's just a few words, but it kind of says it all. Haley cast DeSantis as a desperate and failing candidate who was lying because he was losing. He cast her as a liberal in conservative clothing who couldn't be trusted on core values for the right. The back and forth on CNN did little to elevate either of Trump's top rivals, and the fact that they were still fighting on stage an hour after the Fox News town Hall event in Des Moines had wrapped felt emblematic of the race. And usually these things get lower ratings in the second hour when they go on that long. It was nearly 90 minutes into the debate when DeSantis decided to bring up concerns that the frontrunner, regardless of the validity of the charges about 2020, could be convicted during the campaign. Any larger vision the two candidates wanted to convey was often lost in detailed exchanges over policy as they traded attacks over everything from Walt Disney World to the renewable fuel standard. But Trump had a charm night, uninterrupted by competitors and their opposition research, and appeared relaxed, appearing relaxed as he batted back the few gently skeptical questions he received from the audience. It was plain that Haley and DeSantis don't much like each other. You are so desperate, she told him. You are just so desperate. And DeSantis said of Governor Haley that she's too mealy-mouthed and too liberal for today's Republican Party. And then the Times mentions that Trump even said that he was not going to have time for retribution. So that, be, that was part of the second point. Okay, Washington Post. They assailed each other's trustworthiness, com- competence, and commitment to top issues for conservatives. Throughout the debate, Haley took aim at the turmoil that has roiled DeSantis's belaguered operation, saying, if you can't manage a campaign, how are you going to manage the country? And then uh, DeSantis, with his mealy-mouthed politician, come back. Asked on Wednesday if Trump had the character to serve another term, they treaded carefully and mostly pivoted to criticisms of Trump's policy record. Haley said Trump was interested in vendettas, while she would avoid chaos and drama. Trump took the opportunity, and this was what was most striking about that hour on Fox, to clean up or soften several of his most divisive and controversial campaign themes. He downplayed his vows for retribution, saying he'd be busy with other things. He said he was predicting a crash if he loses the uh, election, not hoping for a crash. And, says the Washington Post, the winner of the night, Trump. The loser, DeSantis, explaining. Florida governor didn't have a bad night, but he's probably the one who needed the most out of this debate given the trajectory of their respective campaigns, and he didn't seem to do much to change that. Number two, I was not surprised that Chris Christie dropped out. When I talked to Christie, I did a print interview with him before the two television uh, interviews I did with him, and I'd done three with DeSantis, but haven't had any luck getting Nikki Haley. 
Um, he told me, look, I'm going to be an honest voice in this race. I'm going to go after Trump. I mean, you know, he telegraphed his strategy from the very start. But he said, you know, by the fall, I think he said, or maybe the winter, um, if I don't have a path to winning the nomination, then I'll withdraw. The thing that surprised me was the timing because I thought he would wait till after Iowa and then, you know, New Hampshire, where he's at about 12 percent in the polls and where Nikki is anywhere from four to seven points behind Donald Trump, plus another poll that's Trump up by 20. That's where I mean, Christie made clear he ain't endorsing anybody. He criticized all of them, called them cowards because they're unwilling to say, in the former governor's words, that Donald Trump is unfit for the presidency, and that makes them unfit for office. Because Christie has acknowledged that he made a mistake backing Donald Trump when he dropped down in 2016, thinking he could help make him a better president, knowing all his flaws, according to the governor. And he said he would never make that mistake again. Uh, and then came the hot mic moment. You would think somebody as experienced as Christie would have been able to avoid that. Here's what he said about Nikki. I mean, look, she spent $68 million so far, just on TV. $59 million by DeSantis, and we spent twelve. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment, you know? And she's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. And he started to talk about DeSantis. You know, I talked to DeSantis. DeSantis called me, petrified that I would, and then the mic went off. I don't know whether it was was accidental or deliberate. I guess petrified that he would endorse Haley. So... A lot of people in the Republican Party don't like Chris Christie anymore. He got booed a lot. And he would describe that as a badge of honor. He describes himself as the, as the truth teller in this campaign. He certainly made a vigorous case against Trump. But also, he didn't qualify for this CNN debate. And so, it was just a question of when. And... Even though he's not going to go out and say, people of New Hampshire who, like me, should vote for Nikki, I think polls have showed that, he, uh, that she is the second choice for many, maybe three-quarters of Christie voters. So we'll see how much that does or does not boost her in New Hampshire. Number three. So this was just an unbelievable stunt by Hunter Biden. That I have to say, right up front, I think it was a miscalculation, and I think it hurt his father. Every time Hunter decides to do what he sees as an aggressive pushback, the White House is not happy. Now, is he entitled to defend himself? Yes. He's also under criminal indictment, by the way. And yesterday was the day, morning hearing, uh, that House committee was going to hold a vote and the outcome preordained because the Republicans control the committee and the House on holding him in contempt of Congress, which also would have to be voted on by the full House, um, because he wouldn't comply with a subpoena to testify. And this was all orchestrated. So Hunter and his lawyers, you know, walk into the room. Everybody's shocked. Oh, my God, what's going on? And Nancy Mace, who I interviewed a few weeks ago, says... Can we, can we just arrest him right now? He should be in jail. But then Democratic lawmaker 
Jared Moskowitz has, starts throwing down all these pieces of paper. He says, well, you know, this committee is only interested in pursuing subpoenas against Democrats because here's a subpoena for Jim Jordan, and here's a subpoena for Kevin McCarthy, and here's a subpoena for this one and that one. All of these Republican members of Congress who blew off the subpoenas during the January 6th investigation by the Democratic House Committee. So Moskowitz makes that point, and then it's Marjorie Taylor Greene's turn to take the mic. She begins to ask a question, and quite melodramatically, Hunter and his team stand up and walk out. And she goes off and says, he's afraid to take questions from a strong conservative woman. This is outrageous. But knowing that this would happen, the that is that Hunter's team knew it would happen. The live coverage, Fox, CNN, MSNBC, all switched to the hallway where there's all these cameras and all these reporters. I mean, it's a mob scene. And Abby Lowell, as I briefly mentioned yesterday on the podcast, gives this little talk about his client. Hunter Biden was and is a private citizen. Despite this, Republicans have sought to use him as a surrogate to attack his father. On six different occasions, we've often to work with the House Committee and see what and how relevant information to any legitimate inquiry could be provided. But as you know by now, Hunter wants to testify in public and show the world. The committee's not having that. They said, we subpoenaed you for a deposition behind closed doors. They did say they would release the transcript. But the main thing is, Hunter Biden didn't speak. He's walking along at a brisk pace. I think a Fox reporter, a Fox reporter did get in one question uh, why did you allow your father to join in, on uh, business calls? Why did you put him on speaker? And he says, do you have a dad? Does he call you? But basically he didn't speak. Unlike the one last month where he stood in front of the Senate side of the Capitol and made the case for himself. And whether you like him or don't like him, whether you think he's a, a former addict who deserves sympathy or a troubled man who has caused so much problems for his father and made a lot of money off the last name, as he himself has acknowledged, in places like China and Ukraine. Regardless, you heard from him. But this time, he didn't talk. It was all photo op, all staged, and I think it backfired. I think it did not look good. What it did was shine a spotlight on all of the questions about his business practices, the extent to which Joe Biden, as vice president, talked to his business associates. Nobody has yet proven there was anything beyond that. Um, so back at the hearing, Marjorie Taylor Greene, this is by the afternoon as they debated the subpoena, tried to display naked photos of Hunter Biden with certain portions of his body redacted and the Dems went nuts. Jamie Raskin, this is not the Jerry Springer show. This is the United States House of Representatives. Come on. And this Congressman Moskowitz then displayed a large photo of Trump with Jeffrey Epstein. When Republicans objected to that, Raskin joke, would you accept a pornographic photo? Now, that's a really cheap shot because, yes, we knew that Donald Trump, well, you know, a couple decades ago, 
was friends with Jeffrey Epstein, but there is no evidence, even uh, in the uh, material that has come out as a result of a civil suit, that even the main accuser of Jeffrey Epstein says she doesn't believe that Donald Trump engaged with sex with anybody. And there's no evidence of that, just like there's no evidence that Bill Clinton did. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four. I know this is a lot of Trump, but the foreign president heads today to New York. He wanted to deliver part of the closing argument in that civil fraud trial brought by state AG Letitia James, but he's not going to get to do that. He's going to go anyway. I'm sure he'll talk to reporters. He has turned, as I said yesterday, courthouses into part of his campaign apparatus. But one of his lawyers wouldn't accept the conditions imposed by the judge, Arthur Engeron, who Trump has repeatedly criticized as a Trump-hating judge and so forth. The judge said in the email exchange with Trump's lawyers that while he was predisposed to allow Trump to speak, the former president would be limited to discussing the facts of the case and the relevant law and barred from attacking the judge, the judge's staff members, or Letitia James who brought the suit, the civil suit. She's now asking for a $370 million fine. Well, as the Times puts it, those conditions may have nullified Trump's purpose in speaking. Sensing that Trump wanted to bring his campaign to the courtroom, Engeron warned that he would promptly shut Trump down if he tried to do so again. If Trump violates any of these rules, Engeron wrote in an email, I will not hesitate to cut him off in mid-sentence and admonish him. If he continues to violate the rules, I will end his closing argument and prevent him from making any further statements in the courtroom. He's also threatened a fine of uh, at least $50,000. Of course, he's fined him before. I guess one instance was $5,000 and one instance was $10,000. Now, Trump lawyer Christopher Kyes saying the conditions were filled with ambiguities and finally said, you know, forget this. We're not going to, Trump's not going to speak. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, who famously promoted the birther conspiracy against Barack Obama, has now shared a post from Gateway Pundit saying Nikki Haley is disqualified from being president or vice president because her parents were not U.S. citizens at the time of her birth. She was born in 1972. They came here. Yes, they later became American citizens. But AP says this is completely outlandish because Haley is a natural-born U.S. citizen who is eligible to serve as president because this is, this is even a major problem with illegal immigrants bringing in family members or having a baby is the more specific example if people come and you're the baby born in the United States, regardless of the immigration status of your parents, you are automatically an American citizen. So I don't think this is going to go anywhere. Number four, and this came up, Trump brought it up in the town hall. An angry backlash erupted at a Brooklyn high school yesterday after New York City officials housed about 500 migrant families in an auditorium there overnight because of heavy rains and fierce winds at their shelter site. About 2,000 people 
were evacuated. Now, this is a James Madison High School. I didn't go there, but I grew up not very far from there. And I know the field, it's called Floyd Bennett Field. I think it was a former Air Force facility uh, where they were housed. Now, the way Trump put it, it sounded like thousands and thousands of students were being kicked out of New York City schools in order to make room for these migrants. And by the way, the parents at James Madison were mighty ticked off about this, and I don't blame them. But it was only for one day because schools got canceled everywhere. This tremendous wind and rain uh, of the storm that went up and down the East Coast. So there was no school on Tuesday. And yesterday, the authorities said that the James Madison students would work from home because of the impact of the weather. But that today, they're back. So it was one day. And you can still argue the merits of it, yes or no. But it, it does sort of show you the, the, how it's, it's become an untenable situation when it's not just Texas, when it's not just a border states, but when it's New York City and Chicago and other democratically run cities that have to increasingly grapple with thousands and thousands of migrants. And finally, number five, looking here at the Hollywood Reporter write-up. At the end of this month, Amazon will unleash what one executive calls a tornado that will upend the streaming video landscape. The company will flip a switch and turn on ads, yes, ads, for all of its prime video viewers. Users will have the option to pay $3 a month to remove the ads, but as this other executive from another company quips, almost no one will do that. Are you kidding me? So, we don't know exactly how many Prime subscribers Amazon has. It's believed to be more than 200 million. And that's the thing where you basically get free shipping for all the stuff, products, services, junk you order from Amazon. They throw in Prime Video, which has had a number of really good shows, as a bonus, as another incentive. And they keep raising the price, and I forget what it is now. I think it's $139 uh, for the year. It could be $149. So suddenly they're going to make you take the ads. And yes, you know, if you want to shell out the additional, what would it be, about 36 bucks a year, you can avoid the ads if you're really, really into the Apple Plus shows like Morning Show and, and others. So Prime Video is very competitive. Um, in the streaming wars, 3.4% of TV viewing was Prime Video, 2.7% for Hulu, 7.4% for Netflix, and 9% for YouTube. Now, one other related item, also involving a streaming service, Peacock, owned by NBC. This Saturday night, NBC will make media history. <laughs> the first time an NFL playoff game. This is the Kansas City Chiefs, you know, Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift, <laughs> versus the Miami Dolphins will appear exclusively on a streaming service because they're trying to promote Peacock, which is struggling. So first of all, you got a technical challenge. Usually, first-round NFL playoff games draw about 30 million people. That's when you just turn on your TV and 
watch it on cable or a broadcast network. Can Peacock, which has a much smaller subscriber base, really handle a huge traffic surge, even if it's, you know, half of the 30 million? But this is the real nub of it. We're all used to watching the NFL playoffs for free. I mean, yes, if you're watching some of it on cable, obviously you're paying a monthly cable fee. But you turn your set and you don't think about that. If you want to watch the Dolphins versus the Chiefs on Saturday night, it'll cost you six bucks. You got to sign on as a subscriber to Peacock. And NBC Universal paid more than $100 million for the game. So I don't think they're planning on making money on this game, but they want people to check out Peacock. You know, you've got the subscription. You can kind of mess around and see what the uh, programs you want to watch, at least for the next month. Then you can cancel. Or you can cancel right after the game. Right after the game. And Peacock, Peacock lost nearly $3 billion last year. I can't even get my head around these numbers. But I don't know. I sort of feel like this is not great for the NFL. A lot of people won't see the game who ordinarily would see it. If it was a regular season, I wouldn't be that, uh, you know apoplectic about it but the playoffs come on this is money time this is why they play all year i don't know six bucks i gotta think about it all right brought to you as a customer service thanks for sticking with the podcast as we cover the waterfront as we always try to do back here tomorrow with more buzzmeter Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.